and again, like, I don't think that story is being told though. Like the media is covering the people, but they're not covering the, you know, which is why this podcast is fantastic. You know, you can get, get some of this background information, right? Um, and I feel like that's where the dialogue is missing, you know, um, recognizing and, and understanding that that cultural background has actually helped them. It's not been a deterrent. Hi everyone, Sean here, and you're listening to the PDF podcast. Professional Development Forum, or PDF for short, was established to help diverse young professionals reach their full potential in the Australian workplace. We believe that everyone, not just the elite few, should have access to the right tools, techniques and networks to develop themselves. We believe that by becoming the best version of ourselves, we lead a more fulfilling life and inspire those around us to do the same. Today, we have special guest Shelley Trung, the Managing Partner for Reach Australia and Southeast Asia. REACH is a scale-up program for the real estate industry created by Second Century Ventures, an early-stage technology fund. Prior to this, Shelley was an active prop tech angel investor with a global portfolio of startups from New York, Shanghai, and Australia. She has over 15 years of experience across corporate innovation, real estate development, entrepreneurship, and early-stage investment. In this episode, we talk about Shelley's background growing up in Australia as a refugee, her non-linear career path, real estate technology themes and trends, the impact of COVID-19 on startups, and advice for young professionals on the importance of networking. Remember to check out the timestamps in the description. It's a long episode, so let's get straight into it. Hi, Shelley. Thanks for joining the PDF podcast today. Really, it's a very, uh, very happy to be here. Cheers. Uh, maybe just give the audience a bit of a background to who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm the managing partner for Reach Australia. Reach Australia is a scale-up program for the real estate industry. Uh, it's backed by Second Century Ventures, which is a US venture um, of the National Association of Realtors. Um, it is actually one of the largest prop tech uh, you know, funds globally. Uh, some of the bigger funds have sort of multiple uh LPs or limited partners, um, investors, uh, national association of realtors is sort of our, our loan LP. Um, so among the largest funds globally, uh, reach is sort of been a us scale up program for about eight years. And, uh, last year I sort of led the expansion to the Asia Pacific region. Um, so really hoping to grow prop tech, uh, across the Asia Pacific area. Okay. I'm sure we'll get into all that very soon, but actually I wanted to talk about your, I guess you have an interesting background. You came to Australia as a refugee, is that correct? Yes. Yes. I was two years old, so I don't remember much of it, uh, but we landed in, uh, I, I think the story is uh, quoting my mother, uh, $50 uh, in the pocket, $50 equivalent to today's uh, sort of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, the the uh, the rate of inflation, yes. So fifty dollars in the pocket and a couple of suitcases, and yeah, they they've uh, done pretty well for themselves. Uh, thankfully, you know, to to the Australian population for supporting. It must have been such a turbulent childhood, I guess. You you know, your parents came here, um, you know, without speaking the language. Um, sort of, how has that shaped your life? I guess is what I'm getting at. Uh, well, it's a really funny comedy, I suppose, when you look back uh, now, when you're, you know, a little bit sort of approaching uh, middle age. Uh, my parents still don't speak English. Um, they speak what I call Chinglish. Um, my parents <laughs> still can't write my uh, my English name properly. Uh, if, if 
it ranges from Shirley to Shirley. So, uh, you know, it, depending on the day and, and the, the messages my parents, you know, used to leave me when I used to live from home was a combination of sort of Chinese words with English words. And I, you know, it was always quite interesting taking a photograph of them. So um, certainly I think with most migrant communities, um, expats coming here, uh, international students, you know, also coming here, um, there, there's always a bit of a challenge um, customizing to the local culture, uh, work environment, and of course, as you mentioned, the language. Uh, my parents still, uh, they've been laborers, you know, they've been laborers all their life. Um, they still are laborers. Um, and, you know, but I suppose the, the you know, one generation on, you know, um, I suppose a lot of hope now, one generation on, you know, all three kids, university educated, but yeah, all of us are still, you know, working. Um, all, my parents are also still working during COVID, um, which is again, really oh, wow. interesting. Hmm. Yeah, they, they, you know, they, they work in the factory. Um, they, they're still, I, I suppose for them, uh, their complaint is that they have no grandchildren and therefore they should continue <laughs> to work to avoid uh, paying too much attention to us. <laughs> so I think, yeah, so, yeah. So some of the challenges obviously is that, you know, I, I you know, I remember, you know, for those of us who are back in, in primary school, I went to ESL, you know, for the first few years, you know, mm. English as a second language. Um, I know I'm a pretty good English writer now, but certainly was not the case. Um, I didn't have my parents around to help me with homework, you know. Um, that sounds really mm. basic and simple, but what that translates to is um, a lack of understanding how business works in Australia, you know, how, how we can actually thrive in our careers, you know. Um, and obviously a lot of people talk about the glass ceiling. Um, I certainly had to figure out my career on my own in a lot of ways. Um, and, and being the eldest as well, I didn't really have a reference point. And, and again, my parents are not speaking English. Um, so I think that comes with some unique challenges, um, but also builds resilience. You know, I think anyone who's been working, you know, um, elsewhere, you know, I, I myself have been an expat in the States and, and London. Um, and so that sort of trains you to be quite resourceful and quite resilient. And particularly when your parents have come to a new country, still not speaking the language and, and having $50 in their pocket and, and, and now, you know, a few years on um, doing well. I think that's a good point about the when you grow up in a sort of unstable um, childhood, you sort of used to, that becomes your normal, I guess. Like you become um, very, I guess I want to say risk taking. There's a lot. There's definitely a lot of families that you know encourage you know stability and whatnot. But it feels like in your case that um, it shaped it, your story shaped you in a way that enabled you to you know take take every take every opportunity that you could could find. I guess. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about the normal, uh, just a, a funny story that occurred to me. Um, when I was in primary school, I would, uh, I'd, I'd go to someone who was, I think they were Italian, you know, and I'd go over there for dinner and I was probably about like 11 or 12 and this is the bubble you live in, right? You don't realise there's a different kind of childhood. Um, you know, surely everybody struggles with money. Surely everybody, you know, all their parents can't really speak English very well. And I remember being at this friend's house and looking around at dinner and looking and looking at all the sort of pasta dishes and thinking, and I actually asked them, where's the rice? You know, where's the rice <laughs> as a dish? You know, and it just, I think that's where, again, you sort of, you don't really, the edges of, of your thinking. Um, and once you sort of, you know, grow out of that and, and realize, you know, that there's a whole different 
perspective and a new world out there, I think that's where the risk taking involved is you're open to exploring. Um, I think mm-hmm. with my parents specifically and, and, you know, very grateful for them. But I think one of the key things was they had a lack of time. There was, they were so busy making money to th- feed their kids. You know, I, I know a lot of um, the, the community was like, they don't speak the language. They don't speak English. Why, why can't migrants speak the language ASAP? You know, and, and I get that. I actually, you know, I agree with that to a point. But when you have kids to feed, you kind of just need to take the job that you've got, you know. And for them, mm. it was it was sort of just working long hours. And so we didn't, you know, my childhood was spending a lot of time working, you know, in the garage with them, sewing. You know, that was my my mm. sort of work ethic. That's what trained me to work really, really hard to, to late hours from the age of eight, from pretty much as soon as mm. I can I can remember. And so I think that that's certainly an element of, of a work ethic there. Um but, you know, at the same time, though, because they were so busy, I would have my weekends to myself to do what the heck I wanted. You know, um, yeah. they just didn't have time to pay attention to me. Um, and so I had a lot of freedom. Uh, my parents were always, you know, I think perhaps unlike a lot of Asian parents, um, I, I was quite studious anyway. Um, I was always quite a responsible kid growing up. Um, as a result, I got a lot of freedom um, to explore other areas. My parents were not, hey, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer. <laughs> you know, they were not like that. And as a result, I was able to sort of, you know, um, they wanted me to do whatever made me happy, which is, I think, a, a quite a unique thing about perhaps a lot of Asian parents. Um, and so I had a lot of freedom and therefore I, I could sort of, you know, guide my own, take my own path. Um, and, and that is something I think that's quite unique um, for a lot of migrant families um, that are mm. open to, to new ways of thinking and new ways of living. And I think there's always sort of that in, in Australian society, there's a bit of that, you know, stop the boats, you know, migrants are stealing our jobs sort of attitude in some pockets. Um, there's obviously a period generational change, for example. Um, I'm going to use the Vietnamese as an example where, you know, at the, initially there, there were issues at the beginning, but then eventually now it's a real thriving, you know, community that really gives a lot back to Australia. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, every generation that comes here gets a bad rap, you know, because... Mm. You know that, like we had that with a lot of the Europeans, you know, who came here, um, and and I think that's more related to the factors. You just happen to have more teenagers at that age group at that time, you know. Like there's a lot of um, sort of talk about you know gang violence, you know, in Australia, you know, so with a certain demographic. And I know as an Asian, I, I certainly growing up at that time when all of us were sort of at that teenage level, you know, a lot of that was was ongoing, you know. But they grow up, mm. they they pay taxes. And eventually that conversation, you know, fades. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a population thing, you know. Um, it, it definitely moves from sort of demographic to demographic. It's disappointing. Um, you know, I've mm. certainly, you know, I, I, even myself, I've spoken to other friends who are sort of the same background as me, you know, came as a refugee and unfortunately not had very supportive things to say, in my opinion. And I, I thought that was quite interesting even for those of us who had like pretty much 20 years ago had the same background, right? Had the same sort of thing said about us. And there's a short-term memory about that. Um, but, you know, there's, there's obviously, you know, one side of the demographic that's not representative of everyone's views. Um, some of us are very grateful for the opportunities here um, and, and, you know, understand that generationally, we, we just happen to have a lot of kids 
at that time who were Asian who were teenagers, you know, and teenagers being teenagers cause trouble, <laughs> you know, they're, they're out there exploring. Um, but I think that also ties with the fact that, you know, youth unemployment is an issue. Right. Let's not focus on the problem that is that, you know, there's just not enough to entertain that energy, you know, and I think as a society, we need to take responsibility for that, you know, channel that energy elsewhere. Um, but I think that the dialogue changes again, you know, um, every single generation. And, and I don't think it's mm. a, a, a cultural thing. I think it's just simply you've got a mix of people at a certain age. And at that age, teenagers just cause trouble, you know, um, and, and that's just that's just the way it is, you know. Um, and so, yeah, conversations tend to move. Um, it's disappointing, but hopefully more of us are able to be on the supportive side of things. And with yourself growing up in Australia, did you feel different, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, trapped between cultures? Do you feel any of that or what, what was your experience growing up in Australia in regards to that? Um, I guess I had a, a really a mix of friends. So in, in some ways I had, you know, a lot of Asian Australian friends, but obviously, you know, a lot of, um, you know, sort of based on the area I lived in, you know, a lot of uh, Maltese as well, a lot of Italians, you know, a lot of that migrant community. So I actually am very grateful that I grew up in such a diverse kind of, you know, society in terms of schooling, you know, as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I think one of the key things that, that, you know, it is quite deficient around, you know, growing up in that sort of diverse environment is being able to have some of these open to these opportunities, you know, like open to, and this is not, you know, like even just going to America and, and being here, right? Like in the States, mm. everyone is an entrepreneur. Everyone is entrepreneurial, you know, um, everyone ha knows what a startup is, has worked for a startup, has you know, funded, being in a funded startup, you know, like it's culturally it's just a different sort of shaping, you know, and, and everybody champions each other because, you know, if I can do it, you can do it sort of thing. Whereas here it, it's very much like, well, you know, it, it's a smaller community, right? If you do something, mm. if you fail, if you fail in Australia, there's, there's only 25 million people, right? Whereas compared to 10x that, you know, in, in the States, you can fail multiple times, but you're perfectly fine to reinvent yourself in the next state, you know? Um, whereas in Australia, it's a small environment, right? It, and, and there's mm. positives and negatives to that. Um, you know, positive is that, well, we probably have a lot less, you know, dodgy people, you know, uh, because... Frankly, if you do something a bit fishy in the business environment, a lot more people will find out about it in Australia, you know, um, and so that sort of is a cushion. But at the same time, if you fail, well, you know, people are uh, tend to be a little more, little more risk adverse to you. You know, like, hey, you didn't quite do that well last time. You burnt a few people, you know, um, that that communication tends to take longer to dilute itself. Um, so I think that that comes with, you know, again, going back to my background, you know, I did not know that you could really enter business as an option. You know, I basically, I, I probably career guide wise, I you know, a straight A student, you know, did science and thought, hey, I should do what I'm good at as opposed to being open to different career paths. I just didn't think I could 
take on business roles, you know, and nobody in my family ran a business. Everybody was a laborer. I didn't have any mentors in that space. Um, and so it wasn't until sort of my, my twenties that I started, you know, even after university, um, I started meeting people in business and I, I started sort of realizing I had skill sets that were actually relevant to the business sector. Um, and again, I think that's perhaps where I reshaped what I wanted to do over time. Um, whereas mm. I think, you know, my sister obviously just, I, I think with that exposure with me having done business, she ended up choosing a business degree, you know, um, which is, yeah, it's quite interesting because the lack of that guidance um, does mm. mean you get sort of a bit of tunnel vision, I think. A common response I hear from a lot of my friends from minority backgrounds is that sort of that gap in knowledge. So yeah, I see, I see, do see that happening yeah, it's a, it's, I mean, culturally, you know, being, being sort of Chinese, Vietnamese, um, you know, we are sort of, I guess we, we're known, we, we try not to cause too much attention to ourselves. Um, I think it's it sort of, you know, borders along boasting. Um, and, and that's, yeah. that's like actually Australians, you know, overall, like the tall poppy thing, right? Um, the mm. tall poppy thing, you know, I know I've sort of had to, unlearn some things to be able to push my career forward um you know the, you know we can have probably a longer conversation about glass ceilings um i know i sort of sat on a, a sort of a, a university panel recently talking about you know diversity and a lack of diversity in in sort of senior roles in australia right there's only ever i, I think one time um one female who sit on the, the the 500 top 500 companies on the asx as a ceo one asian female mm. ever in the history mm. of the asx that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just amazing because, you know, population-wise, we're, we're certain, certainly well above that proportion-wise. Um, and so I, I think that that's a problem, The you know, culturally, how can we bridge that gap to, to you know, somewhere meet in the middle? You know, I don't think we need to all the way adjust to Australian culture because I think there's unique values about how we run a business that is, is helpful. Um, but at the same time, you know, bridge that gap between hate Australian culture and, and, and sort of, you know, Asian culture, if you like, in terms of mm -hmm. leadership and what that leadership means. Mm, definitely. I think um, looking, yeah, you're right. Looking at the top, you know, 500 ASX companies, it's definitely a lack of diversity. There's definitely no question about that. Um, and I guess attitudes towards um, people who may not fit a certain mold, maybe, you know, one of the reasons for that. So I guess if society, if you know, I understand that things are changing slowly over time, but what can individuals do? Say they are, you know, a minority female. What what advice would you give them from a you know personal perspective of what they can do to improve their career? Um, I think just going back from my own career, you know, like if I was to write a letter to myself at age twenty, you know, um, what would I have told my younger self? Um, and I think one of the things that I really wish I did very early on was network. I wish I really understood, you know, the power of networks um, and, and spend more time speaking to other people, you know, um, because I, I think, I can't remember who obviously is the quote, but, um, you know, they say that the difference between you a year from now is the people you meet and the books you read. And I was very good at reading books. <laughs> Um, very, very good at that, but I was very bad at meeting people um, because you can only extract so much information from a book, you know, and, and right now, obviously, it, it's, you know, reading articles, right, you know, obsessive about reading articles, podcasts like this. Um, but I think people, you know, again, the Asian community, migrant community, you know, 
if you're young, you need to network. You need to be purposeful about networking. Um, you need to put your hand up to volunteer for things you care about, you know, and start that early and start that exploration early. I think one of the things I did really well was just, you know, I, I have a very non-linear um, path when it comes to so sort of uh, where I am today. I, I, I actually studied a, a uh, science degree. I majored in neuroscience. Um, and that's obviously a very, very linear path to being a venture capitalist now. Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, I've done, you know, business, um, I sort of did digital transformation out of university, um, a lot of marketing roles, uh, developed real estate, uh, went to the States after the GFC. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, the same advice I'd give to my sister, like just look at things, volunteer for things that are interesting. You know, don't worry about mm. how well you're going to get paid for it. You know, I've certainly volunteered to do things that are just, hey, that looks interesting. I think I can provide some value there. I think I can help. Um, and I think by doing a lot of things that are a bit random, you know, you kind of figure out who you are, which is important, and what you enjoy mm. and where you can add value. Um, and so I think networking is important because, you know, you might not know the answer for everything and there's only so much Google can do to help you find the answers um, sometimes it's asking the right person so having that network is important um, and then you know and then the ne next bit is really making sure you you sort of put your hand up for things and not always look about how much you're getting paid for it you know payment mm. can mean a number of things and the payment could be collected much later on um, Steve Jobs I think uh, did a, a six-month course on calligraphy i thought i think it mm, yeah correct yeah and that that ended up paying off for apple much later on and i see that similarly mm. in my career you know like you know the, the fact that i'm doing prop tech now well i started investing in real estate when i was very young um i did corporate innovation 10 years ago you know um and you know again back then it was called change management and it was super not sexy. You know, it's all called innovation <laughs> now. Everybody wants to get into innovation. Um, but 10 years on, you know, everybody needs digital transformation. Everyone's sort of, all businesses are, are sort of working from home and that's demanded more digital transformation, right? And so, you know, I think being open to opportunity, you know, putting your hand up, volunteering for things, um, you know, just helping, finding, finding ways to solve problems. I think essentially that's, that's the key thing. Um, and then, you know, putting your hand up um, and volunteering and, and, you know, meeting as many people as you possibly can and seeing how you can be valuable to them. I think that's just a secret mm. for any career, regardless of what sector you're in. Yeah, definitely. I had a similar conversation um, in a previous podcast. Um, part of that was in regards to what you're saying, that Steve Jobs, you know, learning calligraphy and how that's, you know, you, you don't see the, at the time, you don't really see that is of any use at the time, but then further down the track, um, that's, you know, you combine things from different fields and that's where you can create innovation, I guess, in a lot of a lot of places instead of staying within one track, for example, instead of just staying within accountant, being an accountant or finance dude, making friends of other accountants and finance people. Like, I think there's a lot of um, advantages in exploring, I guess, exploring, taking risk and, you know, trying different things for sure. Yeah. I mean, look, an accountant is an accountant these days as well. A lawyer isn't just a lawyer, right? Like I think... 
I think a lot of lawyers need to serve their clients, you know, who a lot of the clients like, for example, if they've got a lot of real estate, I mean, every sector is suffering right now, but, um, you know, no. all, all their clients are now needing to save money, you know, if they're in real estate, you know, they need to, their tenants aren't paying rent, you know, so they need to look at things that will help that, you know, they're going to lose that client if they go out of business, right? So this is one of the things that I think a lot of law firms or at least the progressive ones, law firms, accounting firms, um, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, real estate developers do this now. You know, they're, they're looking at value add for their tenants that are now working from home, right? Like, well, what kind of solutions can help them do that to come into the office when they want and to not be in the office when they don't want you know, so I feel like mm. everybody needs to be part of that dialogue now. And, you know, and if you're part of a big corporate, you know, you might actually be just wanting to, you should probably network with other departments, you know, and learn that side of the business, right? And understand mm -hmm. how everything connects together because everything is is connecting now together with, with data and with digital, you know. So I don't mm. think anyone can avoid it. Um, and and mm -hmm. it, it's important to understand that it's skill sets that are going to be more important going forward than, than sort of hard, hard specialized skills. Um, and certainly the high paying jobs when it comes to management, being able to connect the dots um, is, you know, for example, like, again, going back to my understanding of corporate innovation, um, I now have, you know, a portfolio of six companies that I've made investments into this year. Uh, most of them are B2B. You know, but I'm, I sort of took that knowledge that I spent 10 years, you know, putting in technology for public transport, for banking, for medical groups, uh, all that sort of um, conservatism sometimes or, or risk, you know, they need to manage risk because I understand, you know, banks have a lot of clients. They've got a billion dollar brand. They've got so many customers. If they flick the switch for something, you know, and it, and it sort of, you know, messes the everything up, that's a lot of risk they have to manage. So I, I understand that. So when I go to train a founder who wants to sell into a corporate, well, I'm using that knowledge like, guys, you're not understanding the risk. And so you're not packaging up this sales, that this case study and this, this business case to them in a way that helps them manage the risk. You know, and so I've taken that mm. knowledge and transferred it into venture capital, right? And how I look at mm. companies, how I look at how they onboard their customers, how they actually sell as well, you know, um, how they hire as well. You know, are they set up to hire for, for you know, integrations for, for technology? So a lot of this is, again, you know, connecting the dots. Um, but, you know, I think that's where a lot of people can keep reinventing themselves. You know, I think most people have five to seven careers now, you know, coming out of university. And, and that's certainly, you know, I think the case with a lot of people. Mm, definitely. And actually, just with your career journey, um, it's very, you know, varied. Um, so you started off as a, you graduated as a, as a neuroscience degree, a major? Yes. Yes. Neuroscience and a major in Japanese. Uh, but right. I had never been to Japan. And I speak oh. it very badly, so so yes, okay. that, 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 so yeah, it's been interesting. Why did you do so many things? Was it was it something you were not satisfied with, or did you just what was the mindset? I guess um, <laughs> going from neuroscience to business to you know entrepreneurship to real estate, you know what what's what was the process? Ah, again, I feel, I feel like I'm sort of telling my, uh, my life in a comedy, in a bit of a comedy. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, no, look, I, 
I really like science. I'm obviously a very analytical person. I like asking questions. I like getting answers um, and figuring things out. You know, that's certainly the mentality I've taken with every part of my career, right? You know, looking at problems, finding a theory, you know, pro pro providing a case study, providing a, a theory on how to solve it, and then testing it and then deploying, right? And then improving on it, you know, improving on that process and system. So, um, but I think for me, like, again, I sort of studied science because I was good at it. You know, I, I did well in that sort of environment um, and, and they're being very introverted and analytical. Um, you'd never be able to tell that now, but I was a very introverted kid. <laughs> um, but yes, so that, that sort of process, I think for me, I realized I was in a chemistry class and I was doing an experiment and I, I, I'm quite clumsy in a lab. Um, and so <laughs> I, I think I dropped one too many things. Um, I was at the end of an, an, a sort of an hour-long experiment. I dropped something in a hot water bath and I had to okay. repeat the entire experiment again. Oh. Um, and I think that's when it was like just, you know, it, it was a minor thing, but I think I realised I was not cut out for a science um, because on a practical level, it is doing the same thing over and over again for 20 to 30 years. Um, it didn't pay particularly well. Um, obviously, science, I think, pays well in China now. I've read that they actually get paid as much <laughs> as technology people. Um, but I guess well. for me, yeah, I had a very altruistic um, ideal, I suppose, of getting into science. I, you know, as you do in, you know, when you're 20 or 19, you know, you want to help cure cancer, right? But you don't mm. understand on a practical level what that actually means. And that means doing, again, the same experiment over and over again, perhaps for years, and then perhaps also asking for government grants to justify and support your research, right? And it just, to me, for me personally, it was quite monotonous. And I, I felt like I, I just wanted to be able to, you know, um, use my people skills, you know, or learn those people skills. Um, and I just felt like things would move faster in certain sectors. Um, and so for me, you know, it was actually not a, again, it wasn't a linear path. I sort of graduated with the degree Work, took a year off actually doing a traineeship in a lab, realized that I really wasn't cut out for it. And then sort of after working, but you know, while I was university, I was working full time in an office, you know, in an office space, you know, sort of doing marketing, doing, you know, high level administration work. I started working when I was very, very young. So I started sort of having a pretty, a pretty proper job already when I was at university. And then as a result, you know, when I was working at these companies, I just sort of kept finding new ways to do things um, more efficiently. I think innately, I was quite lazy. <laughs> I was just sort of, you know, innately. So that I think I can't remember who it was um, who said, look, give, give someone, if you want to sort of find an easier way to do something, give someone who's innately lazy a job that who, who, right. someone who's relatively smart, but also innately lazy, you know, and they'll find mm. a more efficient way to do something. Um, and, yeah. so, <laughs> and I, you know, and, and, and so, you know, I take that as um, you know, a, a bit of a skill set. Like I, I look at something analytically. Um, I, I think of like, how can this be better? How can this serve the customer better? How can I you know, not do the boring main, mundane stuff? You know, that's, I suppose, how mm. Australia became a services you know, um, country, right? Services country, you know, a lot of manufacturing has moved, um, you know, offshore. Um, so I think for me, I started coming into a company and just 
started asking questions, you know, being not very, you know, very um, open to risk, you know, started proposing, hey, how about we do it this way? You know, I'd just be, come in and fix things, you know, and say, well, let's mm. do it this way, you know, and asking questions. And look, not every single one of my projects got an okay, you know, to do, but I was able to come in and fix things. And I felt like I was just really good at fixing things um, and, and mm. sort of, you know, you know, in sort of very efficient, streamlined way, you know. And I was, I was, brave enough to come in and propose ideas and then go ahead and actually do it, you know, um, with very little resources. Again, you know, one of the things of growing up as a refugee, former refugee is like, you don't have many resources, right? You don't have a lot of help as well. Um, mm. And so I think that's, that's where, you know, some of my, you know, my sort of personal, you know, values came into work um, and able to drive a lot of change with not a lot of resources and, and being analytically, you know, scientifically minded, I was able to, you know, propose ideas, test them, implement and improve, keep improving. Um, and as a result, I, I, because I was able to do that in business, I kept being in that sort of business process improvement role and, and eventually, sure. you know, being able to sort of you know, manage investments as well. Again, seeing, seeing opportunities in the market, right? Same sort of mentality, you know, thinking of ways to, to do things better. Gotcha. And just in regards to from moving from corporate life to doing your own thing, and then obviously you've been to New York, you've been all over the world. Um, how how did that happen? I guess. Yeah, I actually moved to the states uh, after the GFC, so that risk profile again. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I, look, you know, I again, I, I guess I'm I'm quite analytical, quite rational in a lot of ways. Um, I looked at the numbers, you know, I, I know I spoke to quite a few real estate mentors. Uh, no one I'll point out because they're quite prominent in the media that they were sort of my early mentors. Um, and they sort of said, look, it's going to take years for the real estate market to cover, recover in the States. Um, but I kind of just sat down and I looked at the numbers and I'm like, you know what, this, is, this makes sense. I ran the numbers. And, you know, even if it took 10 years for the real estate market in the States to recover, I would still make my money back times 3x, you know, and that's not even including the, the sort of foreign exchange rate at the time. Um, I think, a, a, you know, a dollar uh, Australian, sorry, a dollar US was buying a dollar 20, you know, over there. So it was a, quite mm. a nice exchange rate. So I guess I sat down and made and looked at the numbers and I'm like, this is silly. I'm, I'm like, the numbers work. I'll, I'll, you know, the numbers work. And I just said, well, I'm going to go over there and figure it out, you know, as, as you do with everything um, and, and being open to that. Um, I didn't have any real estate connections in the States. I'd never, you know, um, before the GFC, I didn't really, I had family there, but they weren't in business all in real estate so yeah moving over to the, to the states was very much driven by the gfc you know seeing opportunities in the mm -hmm. gfc you know being able to you know make the numbers work um and then i had so much fun in the states i think um again i just got along really well with uh, the american mentality of hey if you can do it i can do it you know and and sort of how you know like what's the worst case scenario you know if i mess this up i'm in my 20s i mess this up I've got like another 20 years to, to sort of correct it, yeah. you know, um, and taking that sort of longer term approach, you know, what's your risk? Can I manage the worst case scenario? Um, and so, yeah, so going to States, you know, um, I didn't set up to set out to sort of stay there longer term, but sort of, you know, started buying, um, you know, real 
real estate after the GFC, I had sort of roughly two years of good buying. And then like they were telling me it was going to take 10 years to turn around. Well, it turned around in two to three years and I couldn't buy anymore because the, the Goldman Sachs would come in and buy parcels of <laughs> parcels of 300 houses. And I was buying a good amount of real estate, but not 300. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't compete anymore. Um, and everything started turning and then I ended up uh, sort of, you know, as a result of, um, you know, again, opportunities when, you know, and I'm seeing the same thing with COVID, right? Um, opportunities at, at the time, um, there was a lot of prop tech, there was a lot of real estate innovation because after the GFC, there was a need for more transparency in real estate. There was a need to clear all that real estate as well, you know, all that backlog, you know, foreign investment, whatever it was. Um, and so I saw PropTech sort of rise from the need after the GFC. And so I started profiling a lot of that technology in, in the States. Um, I was raising my first round of funding um, for, for property. I, I was in a good position that I could actually self-fund for a little while. Um, but then I, I sort of realized I, I reached the limit of, of my knowledge and I needed you know again one of the things I wish I did more of was network more um, and talk to more people around you know asking for advice um, and and you know really uh, you know when I was raising my first round of seed capital I actually got a couple of acquisition offers um, and by then I would sort of spent five years in the States and, and three years in the New York blizzard so it was kind of time to come back home <laughs> um, and and sort mm -hmm. of you know things had changed back at home um, and so that's sort of the, the way I ended up sort of being overseas. And, you know, before that, it was a bit of time in London, um, but that was much, much earlier on and, and sort of coming back to Australia. Um, Australia, look, there, and one of the main reasons I came back is because access to Asia. You know, there is just mm. so much opportunity in Asia, right? Um, and I'm not sure Australians understand that. You know, Asia, Southeast Asia, like the fact that, you know, a lot, uh, some parts of Southeast Asia has they're back to normal, like Vietnam, they're having events. Mm. They had a prop tech event two days ago. <laughs> I'm super jealous, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, like- I've got Melbourne, Melbourne in lockdown now. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's been yeah. interesting. Um, but, you know, I think our region will recover quicker, you know, compared to certain mm. other regions in, in the world, right? I think, you know, positive or negative, you know, like having had SARS, you know, in, in this region mm. has- cautioned us to pay attention to these things um and so you know everybody was wearing a mask you know um but anyway it, it was just culturally as well we we sort of move more as a unit in asia you know we sort of understand that mm. we need to sacrifice for our family vice for the community that's just part of our dna right um and so i think as a result of that you know covid it means that we will probably our region yes we're, we're hurting a lot of people hurting right now but I think the silver lining is we will probably recover a lot faster than the rest of the world. Um, and so that presents opportunities. Um, and I'm just not sure Australia is doing capturing that, you know, um, making sure yeah. that we are getting, you know, we have a very, we have sort of, you know, a very diverse population, you know, and a lot of us have an Asian background that we can provide understanding and access to that market. You know, we educate so many of them here and then they fly mm. home. We, you know, we provide the infrastructure, you know, you know they, they obviously pay their fees here, mm. but we provide so much in terms of infrastructure. We educate them and then they take their expertise, they take their networks and they leave and we let them leave, you know. And so mm. I think that, you know, is, you know, myself being Asian Australian, you know, I was seeing a lot of these opportunities and I think it's just, it's a bit of, 
fear around how how would you sell in that market and i think we mm. as asian australians can help with deciphering that you know and i'm certainly seeing yes, that you know from from my peers as well you know um around how, how can we help encourage that dialogue um you know help open up that market overall I think PwC came out a few years back saying, you know, the Asian century is passing us by. Have all these opportunities, but we haven't really done much, to be honest. Um, and like I look at companies in, from Singapore, for example, like, you know, Capital N, um, as a real estate example, they went into China, you know, 25 years ago, went to Vietnam 20 years ago, whereas you, I don't think you've seen any Australian real estate company do the same thing. Obviously, different uh, markets, different demographics, but um, I think, you know, if we want to take the opportunities, we have to do them quickly, essentially. Yeah, it's, I mean, a couple of examples, Airwallex, fastest growing Australian Mm. unicorn, right? I actually just got off a panel with them from Melbourne Uni. So, um, yeah, fastest growing unicorn, China, you know, they they went to Melbourne Uni together, you know, Um, Mm. know, Chinese background. Right, um, Canva. You know, Melanie Perkins. Mm. You know, um, you know, uh, half of their operations are all quite. Oh, sorry, not half, but like quite a bit of their operations is actually based in the Philippines. Right. What is? And again, like I don't think that story is being told though. Like the media is covering the people, but they're not covering the. You know, which is why this podcast is fantastic. You know, you can get, get okay. some of this background information, right? Um, and I feel like that's where the dialogue is missing. You know, um, recognizing mm. and and understanding that that cultural background has actually helped them. It's not been a deterrent. You know, they've been able to access. You know, they're really, you know, with a huge growth strategy for the rest of Southeast Asia, right? They're in China, they're, Mm. you know, and and that says a lot. That says a lot about the opportunities we're missing, you know, because Singapore companies are certainly understanding that and those tech companies are growing much faster than the ones out here you know um they're a smaller country but they you know they're certainly you know building the number of companies that are raising top level funding is is just putting australia to shame frankly um and and how aggressive those companies are in terms of pursuing opportunities out here um i think australian companies need to sort of be aware Mm. of that um, but, you know, in saying that also, um, some of the sort of, you know, uh, a lot of the Southeast Asia companies like APAC itself, you know, since 2017, I think um, one of the, you know, one of the key areas is that APAC's actually attracted 65% of venture capital globally. So APAC mm. is actually dominating with venture capital now. And if you look on that, like salary wise, like just, you know, obviously numbers, we're, we're getting a lot more funding, but salaries, right? We're paying a lot less for that stuff right? Compared to Silicon Valley, you know? And so that's actually a ton of innovation. That's a ton of startups. That's a lot of people and a lot of knowledge coming through, right? And that's the same with price per square feet, right? With real estate, you know, with prop tech, right? There's a lot of population we need to house, you know, coming out of that sort of, you know, poverty level, you know, um, rising incomes, um, people demanding more from the real estate. Um, So hence why, you know, coming back from the States, you know, I'm seeing opportunities to help build the new cities, you know, help redefine these new cities on an ESG level you know how can we build these cities to be more socially you know compatible with humans you know um, be more environmentally sustainable as well Um, and how can we house that population really well and so you know with with the price per square feet and the amount of venture capital coming in this region and and then obviously with your recovery as well this region is really set up to explode and I think it's just it'll be a shame if Australia misses that boat. Mm. 
and I guess we might as well go into what you're doing now with, with Reach. Um, and obviously, you came back here, you spotted an opportunity to, to you know, um, help companies, is it expand into Asia or help companies in Asia expand? Like, um, maybe just tell us a bit, a bit more about it. Yeah, so Second Century Ventures is a the venture arm for National Association of Realtors, and um, that particular venture arm runs the Reach Scale Up program. And the Scale Up program itself, you know, there's a there's sort of a region wise. There's a US one. I launched the APAC one, as mentioned. Um, there's UK and Canada, um, and so. All the REACH programs can actually accept applications from anywhere in the world, right? That's sort of, you know, the way the REACH program has always run. Um, so I, I actually got applications through the, the APAC program out here from, from Germany, from US actually as well. Um, and I focus on companies that, are, that has um, applicability to the real estate market in Asia Pacific, to the kind of assets we, we take care of. Like we have a massive growing, you know, um, aging population. You know, we have sort of in Asia, for example, a lot of mixed use, like you've got retail space and then you've got sort of office space and then you've got residential space all kind of in that one precinct, right? Whereas in Australia, it's a little bit more sort of divided to, into residential areas and commercial areas. Um, and so we look at technology that is relevant to the real estate industry and that helps support the industry to grow. That includes, you know, um, construction technology, um, design technology, so architectural technology, um, but also, you know, legal technology, marketing technology, um, you know, uh, AI, robotics as well. Um, anything that has relevance to the real estate industry or you want to start selling to the real estate industry. Um, you know, DocuSign is a really good example. Um, that's sort of one of our early second century venture uh, companies. Um, DocuSign 10 years ago was sort of, uh, you know, it's a legal tech company 10 years ago. Digital signatures weren't legal, right? And so, but for us, we sort of saw that piece of technology being at a, you know, increase how quickly you could turn around a real estate contract with digital signatures. So that's sort of the kind of technology we look at, like how can that piece of technology help grow, help support the growth of the real estate industry. Um, but, you know, mm. mortgage technology, insurance as well, um, a lot of that is sort of areas, you know, particularly with Asia being unbanked, right? Quite a lot of Asia is unbanked. They're, they're mobile first as well. A lot of them don't have sort of a desktop computer. So what does mm. that mean for the real estate industry? You know, um, what does that mean for applying for a loan? Um, we also, all, you know, like sustainable housing um, as well is quite an interesting topic. Um, you know, uh, sustainable housing um, and, and sort of, you know, that, that demographic that needs a little bit of help. Um, I think there's just so much opportunity with the amount of people we actually need to house. And are the specific countries you're, you're looking at in regards to opportunities and, and whatnot? Um, I think for us, you know, um, you know, we're, we're interested in companies that want to grow in our region. Um, the, the main thing really that we want to cover is the, I mean, I, I think it's less about countries and more about cities, you know, mm -hmm. cities where yep. there is a demand for a better real estate, you know, because um, simply because people are moving there uh, or people are sort of, you know, building their offices there. Um, so a couple of the key targets sort of areas is obviously, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, you know, but the, the sort of Brisbane and the East Coast sort of area, South, Southeast Queensland is a huge growth area um, for us, you know, because again, a lot of the baby boom is retiring and then moving up north, um, you know, that that's sort of the, the population boom there. But 
otherwise, you know, Singapore is, is huge on our list. Um, a lot of sustainable smart cities housing out there. Um, but, you know, a lot of um, Manila, you know, uh, there's so much opportunity in the Philippines because uh, most of their population, like a very young population, so they kind of have the reverse of our problems. Um, they have a very young population that spends 10 hours a day on their mobiles, right? So they're already mm. tech savvy. They're the second largest population in Southeast Asia. Like, hmm. but they receive one tenth the amount of venture capital compared to Indonesia, which is wow. the highest amount of um, population, right? So Indonesia is certainly a huge market for us, but Philippines is under, you know, like not getting as, as much funding, you know, um, for venture capital, but its population speaks English. And they're really mobile first. So we're like, what's going on there? You know, like what's going on there? Um, how can we help that market, you know, improve? Um, but, you know, Vietnam is certainly seeing a ton of development. We're actually seeing a lot of Western companies established head offices there, you know, real estate companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a lot of those markets are really, really interesting for us because they're, they're moving quickly. You know, they're open to opportunity. They're open to technology. They're open to business internationally. Um, so those are sort of the key sort of markets we really, really like. Um, you know, obviously, Malaysia is obviously a big one as well for us. But, you know, I'd, I'd say the top three priorities for, for me right now is really you know, Singapore, we, we know pretty well, Manila, Vietnam, and Indonesia as well in there. With Second Century Ventures and the REACH program, that, that's not startups, right? Those are more... Beyond the startup stage, I guess, what, what sort of phase are these companies in? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, we we take companies that are ready to, you know, grow and scale rapidly. Um, that's that's our engine, if you like. Um, it's, we call it sort of a, a scale-up program, a sales and marketing program. So, you know, the, the fact is our program is not co-located. You know, we, you know, when we had events, we would fly in and really plan the event alongside another real estate industry event because it, it was very much about selling, you know, being on the ground, sales and marketing, you're where your customers are, you know. And so it's a different kind of program. Um, and there's very few scale-up programs globally and there's certainly very few sales and marketing only programs. So we, are, we can only take companies that are ready to sell you know, that have mm-hmm. sort of some of their onboarding process figured out, you know, um, that, that have already proven product market fit to a point, you know, not 100%, but like some sort of idea of how they're going to actually sell, you know, because there's no point in introducing you to a whole bunch of real estate industry, you know, uh, people who want to do pilots if you're not ready to pilot, you know? So Mm. typically we say our sweet spot sort of series A, series B companies, we have taken sort of late C stage companies, um, but even some of my late C stage companies are already selling to like, you know, 20, 20 other big name vendors. It might be just that they haven't switched on their, their revenue. They haven't raised a ton of money, you know? Um, But, you know, a lot of our companies actually don't come to us for capital, you know, um, because, they don't see us like well, we certainly have the capacity to to invest um, following the graduation program, but our engine is really rapid scale into the real estate sector. And it could be you know, mm. an educating on how to sell to the real estate sector because it, it does have its nuances, right? It does have sort of, you know, it, it's not been the fastest to adopt technology, you know, let's be honest, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that's not the, the sector's fault. I think it's just the people who work in the sector like tangible assets <laughs> they like tangible assets right that's why they're in real estate they like things that they can t- mm. touch and feel 
right? And, and you know, like I, I know the real estate sector are one of the key people who still like physical paper magazines, you know, because they like to touch and feel <laughs> things, right? As cycle, I think yep. if you understand that psychology, then you can understand why they're a little bit slower because they're, they're used to dealing with hard mm -hmm. assets. They're used to dealing with things that they can touch and see. Um, and so digital mm -hmm. transformation, you know, I think that there's a bit of a disconnect. And so helping yep. to educate that process is what our role is. Um, but at the same time, we sort of want the companies that are ready for that sort of, you know, that growth phase. Um, and we'd like mm. to see solid revenue. We'd like to see some solid, um, you know, solid traction around, you know, how they plan to scale in my region, Asia Pack. Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely see a lot of opportunity when it comes to, um, you know, business transformation, for example, like you hear companies, I'm not going to point any fingers, but you hear companies <laughs> using systems from the, you know, from the 80s or 90s, you know, just haven't really, or they're still doing everything in Excel. They haven't, you know, really, you know, <laughs> advanced style. beyond that. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which I, I, I guess I understand the mentality because, you know, you look at some of the, um, some of the landlords, you know, as long as, as the building is rented up and they're collecting the rent, that's all they worry about. So, um, yeah, very traditional mindset. Well, for sure. you know, like... And I get it, you know, we haven't had mm. the GFC, you know, out here in, in mm. Asia Pac, right? Obviously, we had the Asia crisis a little while ago, but that was kind of predating a lot of the, the innovation side of things. Um, but, you know, I get it. Like, why would you why would you mess it up? You know, you're already making money. You know, you're making a ton of money. You don't really, like, there's no push for it, you know. And again, after seeing the GFC in the States, you know, and, and people having to mm. fix their bottom lines, you know, and we're seeing that now already. We're seeing, you know, a lot more demand for technology. You know, um, some some of the sales cycles now have been dramatically shortened. Um, you know, usually mm. it takes six months to sort of get something done, and now we're getting deployments in three to four months. You know, which is exceptional. You know, that's half the time, um, and during a crisis, right? Um, and so I think that that's certainly, you know, um, you know, it, you know, I've been quite unpopular on some panels saying that we probably need a recession. Um, to just, just, yeah, just to, okay. you know, yeah, just to, yeah. just to sort of, you know, the, the cushion, mm. the needle on the cushion, you know, a little bit sharper, you know, um, and, mm. and, and so, you know, in some ways, like I always see it as an opportunity. I always see it as like, how can we, how can we be forced to do something better? How can we, you know, take climate mm. change a bit more seriously when we're building a building, yes, you yes. know, mm. because if you have to cut costs, well, where can you cut costs? You know, where can you still build a stunning building and cut costs? How can you just differentiate mm. from everybody else that has a, re a shop? You know, um, the retail sector is certainly being hurt. Um, mm, and we're, we're quite keen to look at, you know, technology that will help the retail sector, but also hospitality, you know, the hotel space, the tourism space. Um, I know for mm. me, I'm, I'm quite, you know, quite keen to look at technology that will help that. But also, you know, when people need to come back to the office, like I'm looking at mapping tools that will help, you know, track, that person, you know, um, for example, if, if they've gone into a building, where have they gone? You know, um, how, how, how will that sort of impact um, that cleaning you know, and, and sort of get people in and out of the office a lot easier. Um, but also if mm. people not going to the office, what does that mean for the retail space that's built around it? You know, like there's Correct. just so many questions, you know, like if people stop yeah. coming to work, well, all that retail space is built for office workers, you know? Um, so I just think that's, that's really interesting. If it, it, it's painful, but it does force us to think outside the box, you know, and, and push us to hopefully improve how buildings are run, you know, you know, sort of environmentally, but also more robust companies, more robust bottom lines. 
almost 30 years of no recession, well, not anymore, but <laughs> um, yeah, has led to a bit of complacency, I would say. Uh, but definitely, look, I, I see COVID as, you know, a bad thing, but also it is opportunities that come with it. So um, definitely agree with you on those sentiments. Um, and just with COVID itself and the impact it's having, you know, on startups and investments, what are you seeing? Yeah, you know, similar similar to a real estate, um, it depends on the location and depends on the sector. <laughs> um, so I think some startups like and, and venture capital overall, um, I know a lot of venture funds are not looking at new investments. They're just kind of in pause mode, if you like. Mm. Um, they're just sort of trying to figure out, like you see this with an election, right? You know, you see this with an election, yeah. people just watch and see, right? Because they just, they don't know what they don't know, you know, which I completely understand I can relate to. Um, and, you know, and then you've got like 20% of the population, you know, who are very much counter cycle. I know for me, like every single election, I'm buying real estate because and, and I'll get, okay. I'll score, I'll score <laughs> some big deals. You know, I actually just bought some real estate, um, you know, during sort of the, this sort of you know, current phase. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting seeing that happen because, um, some startups, some VCs are certainly holding off. Um, and, and if anything, they're topping up their portfolio companies. They want to make sure their companies have a, a longer runway to go well into 2021, you know, and, and they want to, you know, they're topping that up. They're extending the, the sort of fundraise, if you like. Um, I, I know startups obviously, you know, have aggressively cut staff, you know, cut their bottom lines. And that, that look, frankly, it's the right thing to do, right? You have to survive. It's not about thriving so much that you have to, you know, first survive and then thrive. Um, and I, I think some of that is certainly, you know, happening with a lot of venture funds, a lot of angel investors as well. I mean, even themselves, like, you know, economically, some of them might actually be personally hit, right? A lot of tenants can't pay their rent or, or you know, their, their investment's not mm. getting the returns, you know? So, so yeah. So, but I, I think, you know, I mean, for us, we've pushed things back three months, but we're still, you know, um, looking for the cohort. Actually, our Canada uh, applications are open now for Reach Canada. So any companies looking to go to mm -hmm. Canada can apply for the program. Um, West, you know, Reach itself is still definitely doing investments. I've just pushed out, you know, three months for uh, our application pipeline opening in um, October instead of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. now, uh, mainly because we just wanted to, you know, with repositioning with our virtual program. We just actually wanted to plug more into the virtual program for our current cohort. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why we pushed the timeline out a little bit. Um, but yeah, startups, you know, startups, I think, you know, our portfolio are actually, you know, again, we're seeing a lot more demand go up. We had a bit of a pause for a couple of weeks because people just have to, you know, readjust to working from home and with the kids, you know, at home as well. Um, but we're, we're seeing some companies really go, hmm, Interesting. Um, you know, like Ubi Park, for example, um, they provide a contactless solution um, for parking. You know, the, the solution was always contactless, though. So, for example, um, when you go into a, a car space, you know, a car park, um, you usually have to wind your window down, pull out the touch a button, pull out a ticket, you know, and then get out of your car, you know, um, and then when you have to pay mm. for it, insert the ticket in, press press the button and then pay for your cash, right? Like you need to touch a lot of things, you know? Um, and, and so Ubi Park actually provides a solution where you can actually pay on your phone, open the boom gate on your phone, um, pay for it all on your phone. Like you don't have to touch anything, basically. You don't even need to wind your window down. Um, and so that's quite an interesting opportunity now with COVID because a lot of people are trying to one, you know, certainly contactless, but secondly, um, a lot of people are trying to get rid of their, their car spaces in their office, 
you know, for example. Mm. Um, and so a lot of tenants are like, well, what do we do? We need to get rid of this office space. A lot of people are going to work from home. And even when we return to work, most of the people, are, 50% of the staff are going to work from home. How do we get rid of this car space? But how can we still manage it, right, with our staff? Um, and particularly with shared spaces. So I think some companies are certainly pivoting quickly. And the ones that are pivoting quickly and working out how to do that, um, they're going to do really, really well. You know, we can't forget that last, mm. last uh, in the JC in the States, I think Dropbox was a great company that came out of, you know, the, the, the GFC, you know, there's, there's actually a list going around with like how great, you know, quite a few companies that actually, you know, came out of that. Um, so I think there's, mm. there's certainly opportunities for the ones that can change their business model and change it quickly. This might be too macro, but I wanted to ask this question in regards to um, the dry powder held by venture capital and private equity. Mm. Like, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of money around. Um, I, I wanted to thought wanted to get your thoughts on if that's you know a problem. Um, I think it depends on the region, right? And it depends on the sector. Mm. Um, so there is a lot of venture money. Um, I mean, some things in the US are funded, which really shouldn't be funded. <laughs> you know, at least mm. back in the time that I was there. Um, you know, it's just random, crazy ideas that, that get funded. You know, um, and and. And so I think certain locations, um, you know, like UK has a lot of venture capital as well. I actually feel like the UK has done it pretty well. Like you've seen London sort of really turn into a hub, you know, innovation hub. Like it feels like overnight, right? Um, I, I think Australia has a lack of venture capital overall. Australia, Southeast Asia as well, and like I mentioned, Philippines, not, not get, attracting a lot of funding. Um, and as a result, you get more value for money you know, again, more value for money as long mm. as the, the, the technology is scalable to a mass population because, you know, again, the ticket size for, for that consumer is a lot less because the salary is a lot less, right? Cost of living is a lot less. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly I feel like the, the amount of, like more venture capital in Australia has meant that some of the found, the quality of the founders have been, not as perhaps good as like when there was a lack of capital because you've got me, you know, obviously mm. when Alassian started, you've got really, I, I suppose, very committed founders, you know, very much like not in it for the money. You know, they're in it because they, they really want to drive change. They, they, there's not really anything else they could do. Whereas I think sometimes when there's more capital, there's a lot more entrepreneurs, you know, who are in it for the glory, mm. who are in it for the press yes. headings, you know. Um, and I think that that's a problem with any any economy that's very flushed, you know, flushed with capital. Um, but in saying that, though, again, the, the, the COVID situation will, you know, every every crisis will wash some of these guys out, you know. Um, we're certainly seeing some accelerators not continuing themselves because of, you know, the, the ways you know, certain things are run with, with the commercial outcomes for, for some things. Um, and so I think, I think there's money and there's smart money, you know. And ideally with a startup, you want, you know, you don't want money for money's sake. You, you actually want the, the strategic alliance more than a money, you know. But in saying that, not all companies have have, uh, have the luxury to choose. Um, but, you know, I, I think at the same time, Australian companies are very robust. You know, I think that some of the, the, the wording that's been coined is um, a lot of Australian companies are called cockroaches, i.e., they, they, okay. they, you know, like you've got Alassian, you know, the founders yeah. still own 50% of the company. Right? You've mm. got Envato, mm. who I, I believe have never raised capital, you know. Um, and so, you know, you've got great companies who just, they have to get, they have to get profitability. They have to get cash flowing, you know. So, 
as a result, we, we, we're building very robust companies, you know, um, and, you know, mm. Aconex, you know, exiting. Um, so it's simply because we did have a lot of capital. So I think don't focus on the capital and the lack of it or, or, mm. or the fact that you've got a lot of it. Um, focus on building a valuable company and, and serving your customers. Um, end of the day, that, that is what a valuable company is. And then the money and the investment will tend to follow. Um, and and that, that I think that's just the wrong focus in terms of raising a ton of capital because you should be focused on, you know, ideally getting more customers and that being your capital. Because um, when you, yeah, okay. well, you know, when you make, raise investment capital for every dollar you raise, you need to turn 10x, right? Mm. It's not the end of the journey. You know, whereas if you get a customer dollar, that's your customer dollar, right? Like that's it. Like that's your return, you know? It, it doesn't, you know, when you get that venture capital, you still have a ton, like a start of work when you get more venture money. So I think it's just important to understand that venture capital money is rocket fuel and you shouldn't take it unless mm. you know what to do with the rocket fuel because it either can burn you up or it can, you know, pivot you upwards, you know, like it, it just, you need to be careful with it. Get your opinion on entrepreneurship in the US versus Australia. Again, back to the business environment in Australia, it's just not not very conducive to, to sort of failure overall. You know, I think that's slowly changing, certainly with some, you know, some of these success stories out there. Um, but I think in the US, you are sort of, it's just, it's a really natural pathway to either start a startup raise capital you know and then event you know and then give back that's kind of like the the, the mm. process you know you see that with actually you know universities as well you know you sort of do well that you know universities really bring their alumni in help you grow your career with connections right um you know and mm. then get you to come back to, to again mentor the next you know next uh, graduates and and eventually you know um you know you donate to the university right you build entire wings and you get donations right um and so that that model is really done very well in the States, you know, and, and, and that's really a, a career growth path, you know, very open to business, very open to opportunity. Um, and so startups, you know, and, and that startup pathway is, you know, it's a very clear option as a very, very viable career path. Like I think, you know, um, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, private equity was kind of like the, the, you know, getting into finance, into banking, into corporate was like the big career thing. But now the big career thing is working for a startup, you know, working for a startup, mm. working for Google, working for these companies, you know. And so that mentality has changed. In Australia, that hasn't really happened. You know, that hasn't really happened mm. because I think the universities could adopt that a lot better. Um, you know, and, and like for me as a VC, I see different problems. I see that when I fund companies, they can't hire the talent. You know, they can't hire the, the talent that's resourceful, that understands that you need to hustle, you know, like be creative, be a risk taker. All these sort of skill sets um, is, is makes the environment in terms of hiring and scaling a company uh, a little bit more challenging in Australia. So I think, you know, instead of startup founders, um, you know, and startups overall, it needs to be a, a, you know, a more, lot more, edu perhaps like less focus on the founder and more about startup opportunities. And that might be actually working mm. for a startup for the first few years before you start your own company. Right. Like that's, that's mm, really definitely. interesting, you know, um, and, 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 you know, understanding that, you know, that mentality will take a while to change. Um, but, you know, I think the sector wise, you know, challenges and, and differences are, are sort of, you know, a lot longer term changes, you know, and, and again, you know, getting that alumni, like get, getting people to come back and, and give, you know, give their time um, is, is, I think, you know, how we can get companies growing a lot faster. 
you know, because making those introductions for, for pilots, making those introductions for customers, you know, I mean, getting government to actually be a customer for technology as well, you know, that's, that's certainly another interesting pathway to help um, founders do a lot better. And that's, I think, where it's, it is harder to be a founder here because it is so much more door knocking, is knocking on a lot more doors um, with mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't understand technology, they don't really understand how to adopt it, um, and then sort of not seeing a way to make money out of that process. We've touched on this already, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, gender and cultural diversity in the workplace and your personal experiences in, in the workplace. Is that something you considered when you were working or do you just ignore it and, you know, stuck to what you did I guess um I mostly just ignore it um (laughs) yeah no that's a really really good point um you know do I pay much attention to it look I know it's a problem you know I know Mm. but I wasn't sure I was aware of that problem when I was younger you know like certainly getting Mm. to middle management um was where I, I sort of realized wow I am being sent roles that are way too junior for me. You know, I'm, I'm being told that mm. I can't, you know, like my earning, I've been told what I can earn and I don't think that's correct. Mm. I, you know, certain, I mean, perhaps it's just me being um, sort of quite rebellious, you know, um, you know, I, I sort of know my market worth and I, you know, I'm very mm-hmm. active about going after it, you know, um, and I'm, I, you know, I'm okay with, you know, disagreement overall. Um, and because I, I think that leads to positive change personally. Um, but, you know, I certainly started seeing it in middle management, you know, um, particularly being Asian, female. I'm only five feet tall, so I look very unintimidating until I open my mouth, apparently. Um, but <laughs> I've been told that several times. Um, but yeah, it, it's sort of one of those key things where I, I you know, I also look really young, you know, um, and so, you know, I perhaps sound really young as well. Um, and so I think that's certainly a, a bit of a, a challenge for me um, to, to sort of, you know, be, a, you know, I think you need to be aware of that, you know, but it shouldn't, mm. it shouldn't stop you, you know, it shouldn't stop you. Mm. Um, if you're, you know, if, if you've got sort of, you know, you know, you're smart, you know, you're hardworking, you know, and for me, I'm probably more of a hard worker than on the smart side. I'm just happy to work long hours <laughs> to get to where I need to get to. Um, and, and I know I can find answers if I don't know those answers. Um, and I think that that's probably, again, driving back to my migrant background. You know, um, I, I certainly see mm. from middle management onwards, it was a challenge, which is partly why I started my own business. Right? I started my own business. Mm. I started a, a non-linear path. I started investing, you know, and this is something mm. that I think, you know, anyone from migrant communities, like there is no glass ceiling for investing, right? If you're a female, mm. it's just a numbers thing. If you're a better investor with the fact that you can analyze numbers and actually do the deal and, you know, I mean, negotiations, okay, sometimes, you know, it, it's trickier to, to, to negotiate being a female um, and cultural background, but everything can kind of be undone online these days, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, you know, certainly when I was negotiating a lot of deals, you know, I was doing them in person. Um, but I think if you know how to navigate some of that, um, you know, it, it certainly minimizes the barrier, but it certainly is there and it's still there. Um, and I know for me, like if I was to move to Asia, I think my career would have moved a lot faster when I was younger. Okay. You know, I, I know that that's, that's you know, like a key thing, right? Um, I'm, I don't want to sort of say, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't be a barrier. You know, it shouldn't be the excuse that you let yourself get away with. Um, and, and, you know, all of us need to kind of do our bit to keep, you know, keep in the game, keep, keep in our careers, keep pushing forward, mm. keep, you know, moving forward, because frankly, the next generation is going to have the same problem if you don't keep with it. 
Um, and finally, what are your, Shelley, what are your future plans at the moment in regards to what you're doing? Um, so basically, you know, for me, obviously I driving, you know, a lot of venture investments in the real estate space, um, specifically, you know, as, as I mentioned around, you know, sort of some of the ESG side of things, you know, how can we be more sustainable, build more sustainable businesses. Um, but I think again, some of this diversity stuff, um, some of this opening startups as a viable career path with universities is really interesting. Um, I think, I think that might be a, a great opportunity to start talking to universities about how can we educate that community, work with VCs, um, you know, and, and help help that particular sector open up a bit more. You know, I think we've done a lot of, hey, be a founder, be a founder, be a founder. But I think there needs to be, you know, mm. with, with the demographic, you know, with the amount of capital coming into APAC as well, you know, and this recovery. You know, there's just so much more demand for digital transformation, you know, work. Um, I'm not sure universities have that as a course, you know, how to, how to do digital transformation, you know, like 101, how to work for a startup, you know, how, how to, you know, what are the career paths for a startup, you know, and looking at how I can perhaps share some of that knowledge myself, um, whether that be, you know, just opening up some teaching opportunities, potentially, I, I guess I've always just wanted to, you know, uh, sort of impart knowledge in some way and, and sort of share some lessons learned. So I'm, I'm kind of sort of looking at opportunities around how I can help the Australian sector and the APAC sector overall sort of encourage more dialogue around working for startups and working for technology. And lastly, uh, where can people reach out to you and who should be reaching out to you? Yeah, so um, definitely looking for real estate technology companies um, opening up applications in uh in october as mentioned um there's only one sort of you can look me up on linkedin shelly trung shelly with an i um there's only one of me so i'm super easy to find um, okay. <laughs> and and you know ping me um let me know you've, you've listened to this podcast and and you know if, if there's something i can help with um but i think the main thing people i'd love to hear from is definitely you know other startup prop tech founders but real estate industry certainly real estate industry real estate professionals, um, you know, that includes banking, insurance, finance, you know, all those sort of sectors, legal, accounting, um, all those players who want to be more involved in prop tech overall. Um, but otherwise, yeah, more dialogue with universities would be interesting as well. Um, again, just opening up that channel around what can we do to encourage more students to be placed into startups to, to sort of educate that, that sort of channel to open up that career path. Fantastic. All right, that's all we have time for today, Shelley. So really appreciate you being on the PDF podcast and wish you all the best on your future endeavors. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the PDF podcast. Remember to subscribe to the PDF podcast and follow us on our social media pages to get reminders on our upcoming events, webinars, and videos that aim to inform, connect, and inspire. Have a good one.